Uh, over the last few months, and especially during the season of Advent, there's been a recurring theme uh, in the preaching and in the lessons. Uh, how shall we live while we wait for Jesus to come? How should we live while we wait for Jesus to come? This is of chief concern to the Apostle Paul, who this morning is writing to the brethren, the brothers and sisters in the church in Thessalonica, to restore hope that Jesus is coming and to provide some fatherly instruction on what they should do while they wait. In Acts chapter 17, we learn that the church in Thessalonica was born during a three-week mission during Paul's second missionary journey. Luke, the physician, historian, and companion of Paul, writes that as was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue on three Sabbaths. He opened the scriptures and proclaimed that it was necessary for the Christ to die and to rise again. And that Jesus is the Christ. In response, some Jews, many devout Greeks, and not a few leading women believed. Paul describes their conversion in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. The gospel came to them in power and conviction, turning them from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son to return from heaven. But as we learn in the letter, with regard to Jesus' coming, there is a problem of timing. The brothers and sisters in Thessalonica having their new faith tested or starting to become anxious. In fact, some have died, and those who remain are unsure what it will mean for those who died when Christ comes again. Some, believing that Jesus' return will be imminent, have stopped working and become idle, thinking that his return will come soon. Why bother? As I studied for, in preparation for the sermon, I found it helpful to dig into the drama surrounding Paul's writing of this letter. Here are a few things that I've learned that I think are important. At this time in the first century, the Roman Empire dominated all of the kingdoms around the ter and territories around the Mediterranean Sea. And it was growing even stronger through military Force. Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, had transformed the Roman Republic into an empire, stabilizing the government, transferring political power from the Roman Senate to himself as a dictator. In the center of Rome, Marcus Agrippa, a close supporter of Augustus, built a temple called the Pantheon. From the Greek, pantheon means literally the temple for the worship of all gods. Once subjugated, the gods of foreign nation, nations, such as, say for example, Isis, the, the Egyptian goddess, 
would simply roll into the pantheon of all gods. As long as the citizens paid allegiance to the emperor and conformed to the empire's polytheism, conquered nations would be free. Free to enjoy the Pax Romana, or Roman peace. This is the kind of peace that you enjoy when there's a boot on your neck and chains on your wrist and chains on your ankles and a whip on your back. It's the kind of freedom that you have to accept injustice and do as you're told. Within the empire, there was one kingdom that resisted compliance and the rule of religious syncretism. The kingdom of Judah had been a client state under Roman authority since the fall of Jerusalem in 63 BC, almost 100 years before. Judaism was uncompromisingly monotheistic, and the relationship between the empire and the Jews was contentious. With roads and shipping and trade, Roman citizens, including the Jews, could move freely throughout the entire empire. With this diaspora, Jews began to settle across all the full expanse of the empire. Jewish sects, particularly those closer to the temple in Jerusalem, resisted the Hellenizing influence of Roman culture on Hebrew language, culture, religion. Conflicts were persistent between the Roman-appointed Herodian kings that governed the Jewish people, the strict religious sect of the Pharisees, and the more secular humanist sect of the Sadducees. This consistently, consistently threatened the fragile stability of the relationship between the kingdom of Judea and Rome, built on compromises of conviction. Within this kingdom, one particular thing threatened to undo the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. It was the name of Jesus. This morning's lesson from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is the conclusion of a letter that Paul is writing from the cosmopolitan Roman stronghold of Corinth. Corinth is an isthmus, an important overland trade route southwest of Athens, Greece. He was driven from place to place, from Asia into Europe, by wind, by the Holy Spirit, by an inescapable conviction to preach the Word of God and the violence and hostility of those who hated the gospel and the name of Jesus Christ. Paul came to Corinth by way of Thessalonica. Paul himself, a Roman citizen and a once devoted Pharisee and fierce enemy of the church, having met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, now spread the name of Jesus across Asia and into Europe. In Corinth, Paul is staying with Aquila and Priscilla, Jewish converts who recently arrived in Corinth after the current emperor, Claudius, expelled all the Jews from Rome including Christians, due to conflicts that were upsetting the civil order. 
You'll remember that Christians at this time are considered a heretical Jewish sect. What is true in Rome is also true in Corinth, where the Jewish leaders strongly opposed Paul, who in frustration shook the dust from his garments as a testimony against them and committed himself to go and minister among the Gentiles elsewhere. Paul was about to leave Corinth when the Lord spoke to him and said, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. After which, Paul remained in Corinth for 18 months, devoting himself to the Word of God. Months before in Thessalonica, some men and leading women and devout Gentiles received the Word of God and came to faith. Luke tells us in Acts that some Jews became jealous and formed a mob and attacked the house of Jason, who was hosting Paul and Silas while they were there. Not finding Paul and Silas, they drug Jason and some of the brothers who had believed before the city officials, saying, These men have turned the world upside down. They are acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying there is another king. Jesus. In other words, they're breaking the rule of conformity. They're breaking the Pax Romana. For their safety, the Thessalonian brothers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. But some of the Jews that had opposed them in Thessalonica pursued them there and stirred up the crowds against them. In response, the brothers then sent Paul on to Athens. Here, breaking from Timothy and Silas and Berea, Paul sent Timothy, who he calls our brother and co-worker in the gospel of Jesus Christ, back to Thessalonica to establish and exhort them in the word, in their faith, fearing that the tempter would, had turned them away. From Christ before, before Paul proceeded on to Athens and then to Corinth. Since then, Paul has desperately wanted to return to Thessalonica, some 360 miles north, in what was then part of Macedonia and now is part of northeastern Greece. But he could not go, Scripture says, because Satan prevented him. I say all this to give you a sense of who is speaking who he's speaking to, and the circumstances leading up to the last conclusion of the letter, which is our text. Can you sense the intense pressure that they were under? How can we even empathize with what they were going through? Today, living in Charlotte, you can put a sign in your yard, have a cross around your neck, have a WWJD bracelet on your wrist, a sign of the fish tattoo on your ankle, a Jesus Saves bumper sticker on your car, drive to church without a care, singing, I'm desperate for you, at the top of your lungs with windows rolled down. Back then, the church was constantly under attack. Christians we're always in danger, always on the run, always hiding, always spreading the word of God. 
the church, refusing to compromise, refusing to abandon God's word to them. The church was growing. And Christians were moving all around, spreading the word of God. They were truly desperate in ways that only in our darkest moments can we approach comprehension. Unlike them, even in the midst of pandemic lockdown, we lack an urgent hope for Jesus' return. Because, barring a personal catastrophe, few events in our lives put much of a demand on our faith. I can't help but think um, that perhaps that's tied to the urgency that we have about the Word of God and those who haven't heard it. Stuck in Corinth, Paul is deeply concerned about the brothers and sisters. Paul calls them brothers and sisters, but to him, they're like his beloved children. Maybe it's here that we can best understand the gravity of this morning's passage. Not able to return to them, Paul is worried that the tempter has turned them away. I think we all as parents understand these kinds of worries about our children. What's gonna, what are they going to be like when they're on their own? Are they going to be fortified to deal with the world? Will they withstand temptation? Will they, substan- sus- will they be able to withstand uh, All the dangers that are out there. When Timothy and Silas joined Paul in Corinth, and Timothy reports to the brothers and sisters about the brothers and sisters that they are standing fast in their faith, Paul is ecstatic. Can you imagine, as a parent, all your hopes are realized? He immediately takes up pen and paper to write a love letter to his children. Celebrating the good news, Paul says three things. He praises them for their work, for their work of faith, for their labor of love and their steadfastness, for their steadfast work of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He praises them for their work. Paul then revels in how he and Silas and Timothy worked day and night among them. Proclaiming the gospel, bringing God's word to them like a father raising a child, admonishing them, exhorting them, teaching them, encouraging them, and charging them to walk in a manner worthy of God. But it wouldn't be Paul if he didn't do this third thing by redirecting them to God because it is God's work in us. That matters most. The work of their faith has sprung from Paul's work among them because of the word, word Paul preached and they received. But it was not the word of man, but the word of God working in them. And they had not compromised. This is good news from Timothy. Paul's letter. From parent to child reaches its climax with this statement. For now we live. If you are standing fast 
in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? This is a this speaks to parents. When you see faith in your children, when you see God's word taking root and spilling out, you know, it's always a great thing as a parent to hear somebody else compliment your children for something they did when you're not there to supervise. Especially when oftentimes what you get at home is their junk laying around. And fractious responses to simple, gentle encouragements to clean up their room, cut the grass, get up and get dressed for church. I mean, we're so gentle with them in those times. It's just amazing how resistant they can be. I think what Paul's driving at is very much like what we find uh, John writing about in 3 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. For I rejoice greatly... When the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What is the truth? It's the word of God in us. What love letter from a parent wouldn't it be complete without hope for even more, for even better, and a few blessed words of instruction. For Paul, all that's happened comes back to God's sanctifying work through his word and by the Holy Spirit, which is his will for us. From the end of chapter 3 through chapter 5, verse 11, Paul joyfully for what is joyful for what happened in the past the news that's currently come from Timothy, but he turns to the future with prayerful expectation that God himself would sanctify, perfect our joy at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his will for us. It is God's will to sanctify them. Paul is very precise in describing what sanctification will look like let me point out two of them. Those things that have exhort you, exhorted you, faith, hope, and love, to do what you are doing, you will do them more and more. Let me say that again. The, these things that we exhorted you to, faith, hope, and love, those things that have been reported to us that you are doing, you will do more and more of those. That will be the sign of sanctification. God's will is that you abstain from sexual immorality. You will learn to control your body, unlike the Gentiles who do not know God. The sign of God's sanctification in us will be growing in purity growing in holiness here Paul comes back to the issue of timing live quietly manage your own affairs 
so that you will walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He goes after that first issue of people becoming idle, expecting that Jesus is going to come. Why exercise our faith? Why go out courageously and share God's word and, and, and the likelihood that something is going to happen to us that's bad? I mean, how many of us have been resistant to go share the word of God because we're afraid? I think we all can, can understand that. Please, Jesus, come so we don't have to go do the work. And then secondly, when the Lord Jesus comes, the dead will rise first. And those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to the Lord in the air. Those people who have died, those people, I mean, this, this has been a difficult week for us as a church. Because we as a church have experienced loss in our family. What about them? They, like us, will participate in the resurrection of the dead. It's not just a spiritual continuum of the, the flesh will die and decay away and the spirit will go on living in some nebulous uh, realm. We will be raised with him. New bodies, new life. Together with those who have fallen asleep. Third thing that Paul points out in these, first, in these chapters is be ready. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Be dressed and ready with the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope for salvation. For God has destined us to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. Be ready. At this point, you may be wondering when I'm actually going to talk about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. And nervous that if this is the introduction, we may be here for a while. Um, I promise you have nothing to worry about. Entering into um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 through 15, Paul summarizes what he's already said. So I want to come back to it. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What Paul celebrated before, he recapitulates here. Those things from the positive report for which more and more is to be added. He wants to remind them. You know, the truth of the matter is, uh, it's not learning all the things that we should do or knowing new revelations about things that we should do. It's being reminded. It's being encouraged. It's being reinforced. And the word of God so that we might be grown up in the spirit of God to go and do. That our faith might grow. That our knowledge might grow. Our wisdom would grow. That we might grow in favor with God and with man. 
Paul focuses on those things pertaining to the outward life of brothers and sisters in Christ as we labor together while we wait. Paul and Silas and Timothy labored with them, among them, side by side, teaching, preaching, exhorting, admonishing to their salvation. He writes in second in, a, in chapter 2, verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Those who are called to labor among us and to lead do the hard work of pouring themselves out day after day to instruct us by the word of God and to kindle faith into a flame. I cannot help but say that a great part of the work of this congregation is to respect, esteem, and to love our pastor well. He's been called to a work alongside us and among us that is hard work. For him to succeed and for us to succeed, we must love him better than well. Paul takes care to encourage the brothers and sisters, and indeed us, in this regard. We succeed when our pastor succeeds. He succeeds when we encourage and care. This means shouldering the burden of work, working together, encouraging each other in the gospel, encouraging our life together in faith, loving each other, being at peace with each other. If someone were to describe this body, would that be true of us? It can be. It should be. God is sanctifying us. He's called us. It is his will that we move in that direction. As it says in Hebrews, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other. And all the more, as you see, the day drawing near. This is an eschatological exhortation to boundless compassion. Not to some, but to all. Not just to those we know and like. Not just to those who are most like us, but strangers. Those who are struggling. Those who are faint-hearted. Those who are weak. Even those who trespassed against us. We're to respond to them with respect. Pursuing peace. Admonishing. Encouraging. Being patient. And seeking to do good. Next Paul turns. In verses 16 to 22. From our outward living. And outward sanctification. To our inward living. And inward sanctification. Paul exhorts the brothers and sisters. And us. To focus on the inward life. And our relationship with God. Rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will is our sanctification. God's will is our joy, our prayer, our thanks. Which are marks of that sanctification on our inward life. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. God's will in Jesus Christ is that we be in constant communication with him. Rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. In Jesus Christ, he in us should be the fount of blessing, tuning our hearts to sing his praise. Us in him and him in us by the Holy Spirit. His spirit is not quenched. The Pax Romana that the world extends to us, compromise and have peace, is tested. And we hold fast to what is good. The prophecies that Jesus is coming again are not despised. He's not only the object of our faith, but he's the foundation and the power of our faith while we wait eagerly for his coming. Paul's own expanded version of this exhortation in verse 16 and following is in Philippians 4, 4 to 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And the peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Similar to verses 19 to 22, Paul gives us 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6. For we walk in the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your disobedience is complete. If in your mind and heart you are struggling with worry, doubt, uncertainty, sin. In Christ there is divine power to destroy these strongholds. To take captive these thoughts. To bring them under obedience to Christ. God gives us his Holy Spirit and God gives us his promise. He is coming. God has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ who died for us. God concludes his uh, letter like he concludes his celebration, turning from exhortations back 
pointing to him. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the God of peace. There's no Pax Romana. There's no Pax Charlotte. Even when we're under attack while we wait, even when we're under attack and suffer, even when we grieve and cry out in tears and suffering, he is working in these sanctifying times, dressing us up with the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation and making us ready for his son's return. How do we know? How do we know God will keep his promises? We know because as we read in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 to 10, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. The season of Advent points to the incarnation when the Son of God became flesh. And it points to his second coming. He is the high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness and in whose righteousness we can enter into the whole of holies without fear and draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy. In verse 24, Paul makes his final point emphatically. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He does not leave us on our own. He does not add new laws that we cannot obey until the old laws that we can't obey. God keeps his promises. If Paul only said it here, there may be room for doubt, but, it's, but he doesn't. In Philippians 1.6, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, I know who I'm, I, whom I have believed, and I'm sure that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. First Corinthians chapter one, verse eight till nine. Christ shall confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Romans 8.30 Those whom he called he is justified and those who he is justified he is glorified. God does not leave us on our own. He keeps his promises. What he wills to do he does and nothing stands in its way. So how will we live while we wait? 
Will the story of our lives in Christ be a story of idleness and dependency? Will we pursue a Pax Romana, peace with the world? Will we compromise God's word, compromise the gospel, compromise our faith that He is the only way to salvation? The only way. There's no other way. There are other religions, but there are no other ways to salvation. The Father is sanctifying us. It's in us. He's sanctifying us through the circumstances of our lives while we wait. What will our waiting look like? Will it look like the faith, hope, and love growing more and more as we press in closer to Christ and go out further into the world with the gospel? Clinging tightly to him and led by the Holy Spirit to do the work we've been called to do outwardly and the sanctifying work that we're called to do inwardly as we grow in prayer and thanksgiving and rejoicing. He who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let me end this way. Paul and Silas and Timothy, Aquila and Priscilla and the brothers and sisters and the church in Thessalonica lived in difficult, dangerous, and even brutal times. I think everybody knows enough Roman history to know that after Claudius, the emperor right now, comes Nero. And the persecutions of Christians intensify, and the church grows all the more. If you go to Rome today, most of what you see are relics. Just a shadow of the once mighty empire. The empire is no more. You can still visit the Pantheon, the temple to all gods. In fact, if today you were to walk in, perhaps as you walked up the steps across the portico through the 38-foot granite columns into the building and under the 140-foot dome, you might hear this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those in a dream. When our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O God, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing in his sheaves with him. In the Pantheon today, we might hear Psalm 126 on the third Sunday of Advent, because it's now a church. It has been since the fall of the Roman Empire, in continuous service until today. They lived eagerly making ready for Christ's return. They continued to sow the word of God as they had received it. The seed took root and began to grow, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The field is ripe for harvest. Let us make ready. Let us carry out our seed for sowing 
Let's sow the gospel. Let's sow it everywhere. Let's sow it in East Charlotte. Let's sow it in North Charlotte, Uptown, South Charlotte, West Charlotte, South Carolina. Let's stir one another up to love and good works. Let us be patient with one another. Let's encourage our pastor. Let's bear our seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ out into the field and start sowing. We may go out weeping. We may go out fearful. We may go out faint-hearted. But we will come home with Christ with shouts of joy, bringing in the sheaves. 